Voice of Islam Radio. In the name of Allah, most gracious, ever merciful. Good afternoon, welcome, assalamu alaikum, and may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. From Monday, Drive Time Show with myself, Kayum, and joining me today is my partner in crime, my brother, <laughs> my young brother, brother Imam Imran. Good afternoon, assalamu alaikum, peace be on you, brother Imran. Assalamu alaikum, rahmatullah, wa alaikum, assalamu alaikum, rahmatullah, in the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Um, in the next two hours, we are going to talk about uh, the uh, very two current topic. Uh, firstly, in the first hour, we're going to talk about uh, the great Muslim rulers and uh, their, uh, you know, wherever they went, uh, how they treated their subjects, and also the the example and the uh, conduct of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and the rulers who followed him. Yes, you're right. We are mm. going to be talking about Muslim leaders. Mm. Um, and again, you're right that um, it is very current. Um, mm -hmm. At the moment, leadership is something that's a miss, whether you look at True. it from a Muslim point of view, Christian point of view, Jewish point of view. I think to, to say um, that leadership and... and uh, um, and the world mm -hmm. um, is, uh, is is a miss by a mile. Um, <clears throat> the world is in turmoil, and uh, the world wouldn't be in turmoil had there been mm -hmm. effective leadership. Absolutely. But, you know, before um, coming on, I was looking um, at, uh, I thought, you know, let's go and use a bit of artificial intelligence. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and, and actually, over second hour is, or is that's it. Is yes, uh, th that mm -hmm. is the second uh, hour uh, we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. But I thought let's let's use let's try and find out what people think. Okay. In uh, you know in in the in the on the world wide web, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I found it quite hilarious. I found it quite funny, and I found it also found it quite sad that when you search for most popular most, most popular leaders around the world. Okay. People like uh, Narendra Modi, people like Maloney from Italy, Narendra Modi from India, uh, people like Albanese, people like uh, uh, De Silva, Biden, um, Sunak, mm -hmm. Macron, Schultz, all these leaders, mm -hmm. and some of them are nationalist yes, leaders yes. And, and believe in nationalist ideologies. But there wasn't any mention of any, there isn't any Muslim any leaders who who uh, represented Muslim nations? Okay. 
Okay. And I'm born and bred Londoner. And I always think, why is it that I never get asked any of these surveys? Who, who, who is it that's carrying out these surveys that they always seem mm-hmm. to they, they always seem to find mm-hmm. something or the other, which is which negates Islam or or the term Muslim or mm-hmm. Muslim countries in one way mm-hmm. um, or the other. But then, but then you know, listening to His Holiness mm-hmm. Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed. The fifth caliph of the promised Messiah, may Allah strengthen his hand mm-hmm. at the last sermon when he's been emphasizing the unity of Muslim nations for some time now. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, they are not, nobody's listening. Sure. They aren't listening. So I thought, let's go and have a look, you know, at at what what Muslim leaders or so-called Muslim leaders are they? Mm-hmm. And the the only ones that that kind of come up is obviously Mohammed bin Salman, the the, the Emir of Qatar. Mm-hmm. Then there's Erdogan from Turkey. There is the leadership of Iran, um, the political and and the religious leadership. There is um, the leadership of Iraq. There used to be Muammar Gaddafi, the mm-hmm. the, the the Colonel um, from Libya. Libya. Um, of course, <coughs> days gone by when Saddam Hussein used to be part and parcel of these things, and and it made one think. Well, hold on. There isn't anybody there hmm. Hmm. from the Muslim nations, from the the uh, from the from the mainstream developed world, Western nations. Yeah, all the people that hmm. uh, th- that uh, are supposed to be leaders mm-hmm. um, um, of the world, mm-hmm. they 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 are not leading. Nobody's leading. True, um, and the people who they call leaders within their history. Mm-hmm. Even they weren't leaders because most of them, if you think of, I know like in this country, people think of Churchill. Mm-hmm. But yes, Churchill was there when the Second World War and everything. And But then he was also known for being, you know, he, he had bigoted ideas. Mm-hmm. He, he was known for the, the, the massacre and the, and the, uh, and the drought and yeah. the bingo. Yeah, yeah. But then you think of Leopold of Belgium. Mm-hmm. He was supposed to be this so great ruler, but then he was responsible for the for the massacre of more than twenty million Congolese. True, true. And you know, if if you were to look historically, mm-hmm. I was thinking, well, hold on, let's look at it historically. First World War. Hmm. Well, hold on. It, it, who started it? Not the Muslims. Yeah. Second World War. Who started it? Not the Muslims. Not the Muslims. Mm-hmm. Who threw the atomic bomb? Not the Muslims. Not yeah. the Muslims. Yeah. Who who the slave trade? Mm-hmm. Not the Muslims. Yeah. Um, the the atrocities of the Aborigines in Australia. Mm-hmm. The atrocities of of um, of the Native Indians in America. Mm-hmm. Not the Muslims. Mm-hmm. So if one was to look at it historically, mm-hmm. this notion that that there is uh, you know that Islam is looked upon in a negative way, as you said. True. <coughs> it's not found hmm. and today what we're going to be discussing is that there have been great leadership there has been great Muslim leaders um, and we are as always we are here to correct the misconceptions that mainstream media educationalists um, even some uh, supposed scholars that mm-hmm. um, give lip service to the to this notion of that Muslims um, have never had great leadership, uh, but then I always say, then clearly they haven't read properly. They haven't. They're, they're not true academics because even if one was to look at um, non-Muslim mm-hmm. writers over history, 
people like Pringle Kennedy, Sir Thomas Carlyle, to Sir John Glubb, uh, J.H. Tennyson, Michael Hart in his book, which recently, um, well, not so recently, but not too far ago, um, in his book, The Hundred, um, which ranked the great uh, men in history mm-hmm. with respect to influence on human history, he ranked the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, as the most influential man mm-hmm. in human history. Um, Lamartine, the French historian, talked about the Holy Prophet as the philosopher, the orator, the apostle, the legislator, the warrior, the conqueror of ideas, restorer of -hmm. uh, of rational dogmas, the founder of 20 terrestrial empires and one of the most spiritual empires that has ever been known to man. Absolutely. The Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. I think if if, uh, someone asks us the question, what makes a great leader? I think the one word is justifies that uh, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is the definition of a great leader. And, uh, you know, um, if we look uh, towards the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he enshrined ideas of tolerance and peace in, in, the, in, in, you know, in the revolutionary charter of Medina. So uh, it is truly an inspiring example of genuine leadership and it was inspired by the word of God. Now, in chapter sixty, in chapter two, verse sixty-three, Allah the Almighty states that surely the believers and the Jews and the Christians and the Sabians, whichever party from among these, truly believe in Allah and the last day and does good deeds, shall have their reward with their Lord, and no fear shall come upon them, nor shall they grieve. Now, indeed, the facts of the Holy Prophets just and gracious uh, rule were not only exclusive to his own time. Now, I was reading the Holy Quran the other day and uh, Allah the Almighty describing the what makes a good leader, a good leader uh, good and what's make a bad leader, a bad leader. Now, the, when explaining the Allah the Almighty says that when a good leader, they're giving the power, they, they basically just, they had show toward mercy towards their subjects and also be just to their people and on the other side when Allah the Almighty talking about the bad rulers he says that when they are given the power in the land they make disorder in the land and they does not show mercy towards their subjects and they make disorder in the world so I think this is a very um, I, w- I would say uh, you can distinguish between the what is a good leader and what is a bad leader so we have uh, our first guest of this uh, hour um, Imam Raja Burhan sahib, who is a professor in Jamia Ahmadi UK welcome uh, Professor Raja uh, Burhan sahib Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and thank you very much again for having me on your program on your show thank you very much for coming and uh, for your uh, precious time so, uh, Professor, we are talking about the, the you know, um, the great Muslim rulers and uh, what makes a good leader a good. So, looking from the Western perspective, quite often the Islamic history is portrayed in a very negative way. For example, people are under the impression that Islam was, you know, spread by the sword. And uh, so, for our listeners, uh, listeners' knowledge, could you highlight the true history of how Islam spread? Well, I think um, uh, in today's date, it is very easy to explain. 
uh, I think everybody is very much aware uh, the strategy of Western media. Everybody knows that there is a war. I uh, know. I think it is not a right word to say war. Mm-hmm. I think there is there is a kind of uh, what should I say oppression or attack is going on from Israel. to palestinian people mm-hmm. and you know everywhere in the media whenever anybody will be asking a question the first question will be do you condemn what hamas did <laughs> and uh, if you try to avoid this question then they will again attack you oh, oh, oh. you you are not answering this of our question mm-hmm. and the whole debate will be camouflaged or will be under the impression that they are in the favor of hamas which we are no not at all okay mm-hmm. In the same way, when we talk about the history of Islam, uh, when we look at the early 13 years of the life of the Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, we see he himself and his followers have been tortured, persecuted from all possible manners which were prevailing in the Arab society, especially in Mecca. and after those early 13 years when they migrated they left their home the enemies of islam they even and in that situation when all the muslims or majority of the muslims and especially the prophet of islam he has left makkah they attacked and they planned to attack uh, the founder of islam in madina mm-hmm. and when there the founder of islam in a defensive war he protected himself and his people and uh, the society in which they were living from there onwards they start claiming that oh ho ho look at the history of islam you will find different wars led by the founder of muslim mm-hmm. but they forget always this thing that those wars basically they were forced on muslim in the early days by makkans and all those people who were with the makkans mm-hmm. So point number one to remember is during Islamic history, any war, especially during the life of the Holy Prophet of Islam, it was only fought in defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were two other possibilities. One possibility was that uh, when somebody has already attacked and killed some Muslims, a kind of a revenge kind of thing or punitive war, as it is called, blood for blood. Mm-hmm. Then, in some occasions, this happens. and the third only possibility was that the war to establish freedom to break the hold of those who killed converts to islam these were the only three categories in which muslims in early days and even later on as well they they had to take the sword in their hand they have to take defensive measure just to protect themselves and the followers of islam mm-hmm. so this claim that um, islam was spread by the sword is just like as somebody will say that all the palestinian are words uh, of hamas and whatever mm-hmm. hamas did it is done by palestinian so i think by this of my this of my this of my what should i direct reference mm-hmm. everybody c- can understand this is not what happened in the early days of islam mm-hmm. right um um first of um What are the real objectives behind the Muslim empire conquering different lands? For example, um, you know, uh, Muslim conquered uh, Egypt and Persia, and also some other parts of you know um, Palestine. So Jerusalem. 
So what are the uh, objective and reason that Muslim empire conquering uh, these lands? You know, in the beginning or in the reply to my last question, mm -hmm. I intentionally mentioned this thing that there were three, only three ways. And according to the Islamic teachings, wars in Islam fall under three categories. I told you about defensive war, punitive war, and war to establish freedom. Mm -hmm. And uh, I must mention two more things which are very important because people, they do not know about the history of Islam and they do not know about these realities which were prevailing in the society during the life of the Holy Prophet wasalam, and Khulafai Rashidin. Mm -hmm. On one occasion when the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he was returning from the war, from a war, he stated that Rajana minal jihadil asghari ilal jihadil akbar, i.e., that the war, the physical fight, according to the founder of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is jihadul asghar. It is a kind of jihad which is of low level. Mm -hmm. But he was mentioning we are returning to the jihadul akbar, that is the greater jihad that is self-reformation, educating our own people and preaching uh, the non-Muslims about the true teachings of Islam, that is about the unity of God Almighty, harmony in the society, peace and all kind of justification and justice that were the prevailing features of Islamic society. Mm -hmm. But people, because they do not know, they feel like this, that okay, because the founder of Islam and his followers, they participated in certain walls, so that was their main objective, main objective which was not their main objective. Mm -hmm. And I would also like to mention another reference, which is basically written by one of the, what should I say, a critique or a person who rose many points against Islam. I'm mm -hmm. talking about William Muir, mm -hmm. uh, and in one of his books, The Caliphate, page number 120, he quoted a saying from the second caliph of the Holy Prophet of Islam. And Hazrat Umar, the second caliph of Islam, he said and he quoted, mm -hmm. I desire that between Mesopotamia and the countries beyond the hills shall be a barrier so that the Persians shall not be able to get at us, nor we at them. I would prefer the safety of my people to thousands of spoils and further conquest. Mm -hmm. You can feel the feeling of the leader of Muslim Umar at that time. Hazrat Umar, may Allah be pleased with him. Mm -hmm. Please be, may Allah be pleased with him. That he never desired to have a fight. Right. But you know, all those fights which we had to do, they were to protect his own people. Because the enemy of Islam, Persian at that time, and other empires who were surrounding the Muslim Ummah, they were eager to attack Muslim empire and to torture them and to create trouble for them. Hmm. And it is historically proven, even those historians who were against Islamic uh, empire and Islamic history, they admitted this thing, mm -hmm. that wherever the Islamic empire was established, during that time, justice and all the rights to the people of that society were always given. So what I am, very briefly I am trying to say is, mm -hmm. 
that according to the Islamic teachings, it is no, not at all advised to attack any innocent and establish your empire there. But in the beginning of Islam, Muslims were attacked, <coughs> attacked again and again, only for the de defensive measure. They have to took, they have to take certain steps. In result of that, they were involved in all these wars. Great, uh, um, Imam Burhan. Um, there was a great conflict when we look towards the history of Islam uh, between uh, you know uh, history early history of Islam that between Roman Empire and Persian Empire in conquering Egypt. However, with the entrance of Muslim, uh, you know, a Muslim empire, both were defeated. Mm. So, uh, how uh, were then the Egyptian treated under the uh, Muslim rule compared to the Roman and Persian? Witnesses are found in the history of Egypt uh, that the common people of the Egyptian society, they repeated this thing and they preferred the Muslim ruler mm -hmm. over any other ruler of that time. Mm -hmm. And I think this is very famously known because I'm again and again referring to the current situation of Palestine and that area which was in older days used to be known as Canaan. When Muslim people, they conquered this area and later on when they had to leave that area, mm -hmm. the people of this area, they cried. They said we wanted Muslim rulers okay. because they always treat us with justice. Mm -hmm. and with, with the equal rights to other citizens of this society. So the same thing happened in the Egyptian society. Under the Muslim rule, they were treated very nicely. Mm -hmm. And that is why uh, during the early days and even uh, later on, the Muslim rulers remained there in a very positive way. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do admit that he is also telling us that later on, when even Muslim ruler they became corrupt, the society also became corrupt. Right. But as far as the early days are concerned, it is very simple and very well known that the Muslim rulers, wherever they went, mm -hmm. they were being loved by the people of that area. Fantastic. Um, so, um, Imam Raja Burhan, uh, uh, second caliph of Islam, uh, Hazrat Umar, may Allah be pleased uh, with him, uh, he basically when uh, he expanded the Muslim empire during his caliphate and established a court of justice and a system of government in the conquered land. Could you further explain how this system was uh, implemented to create cohesive society? In the history of the world, not only in the history of Islam, mm -hmm. the second caliph of Islam, Hazrat Umar bin al-Khattab, May Allah be, ple be pleased with him. He is known as one of a very, what should I say, a commanding leader and a leader who established the system of ruling any area in the best possible manner. And moreover, how, the way in which he established his army mm -hmm. and also his justice system and economic system and also system for the betterment of the life of a common people who were living in that society. All these things are very famous and they are related to Hazrat Umar Farooq radiallahu anhu. Mm -hmm. Hazrat Umar Farooq radiallahu anhu established a system in which any common person living in any area of that, uh, that, that, uh, that state, he, he was directly benefiting from the money of that, that kingdom. And moreover, he used to have his direct um, guidance, 
mm-hmm. and uh, he used to keep an eye on each and every aspect of the uh, society and if any kind of uh, unjustification was going on he used to deal with that thing in a very positive manner so uh, historians they have written a lot about the life and the rule of hazrat umar radhiyallahu anhu and that is why mm-hmm. after the prophet of islam prophet muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him he is known as a very very successful ruler mm-hmm. not only economic system also the canal system mm-hmm. also the establishment of army also the reformation of the society and so many more things were done during his time and uh, historically in 1637 when he himself visited jerusalem that was a great time in the history of islam and even the christian writers admit that how peacefully the society was running during that time and although he mm-hmm. expanded his military but that was again to establish peace in the society rather than to create any kind of disturbance it is commonly known that during the time of hazrat umar farooq radhiyallahu anhu the the kingdom the muslim kingdom was a very well established welfare kingdom of all times in this world mm-hmm. so i mean many more things can be said about mm-hmm. this thing but i think i would like to mention two names and two books here okay. for the listeners the first book which i would like to mention is commonly known as uh, murder in the name of allah it was originally written in urdu language mazhab ke naam pe khon mm-hmm. by hazrat mirza tahir ahmed who later on became the fourth successor of the promised messiah alayhi salatu wasalam fourth imam of ahmadiyya muslim community mm-hmm. in this specific book people will easily find out the references that during the time when the prophet islam had to participate in different battles mm-hmm. that was the time when islam did not flourish as it flourished during those uh, years when there were less battles or no battle at all mm-hmm. and the other book which i would like to mention and i would like my listener if anybody would like to have any interest to read is any biography any life uh, history of hazrat umar may allah be pleased with him mm-hmm. even those writers who have written um, against islam they will admit these qualities of hazrat umar radhiyallahu anhu that he was a great ruler and he established a welfare society wherever his kingdom was Um, Imam Brown, before I let you go, because I know you 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 have to rush off. I have one last question. Thank you for the comprehensive answer on Caliph Umar. May Allah be pleased with him. But if if we were to bring the same conversation about Muslim leaders, politically, spiritually, in the last hundred years or just over a hundred years, um, there 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 is there is one leader that that in the West. Um, Uh, in the earlier days uh, he was written about but from uh, from a muslim perspective from a, an ahmadi perspective mm-hmm. the, could you for the benefit of the listener um explain the significance of the leader and mm-hmm. the founder of the ahmadi muslim community mm-hmm. and the impact of his coming to the world mm. uh, i think this is a very valid question because 
on voice of islam on one hand we are talking about the history of islam as well mm-hmm. but we have to mention this thing that what is happening with islam in in present day and time yes and by present day and time i i would like to mention today's date as well and last 100 or 150 years mm-hmm. you know it was prophesized by the founder of Islam prophet muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him that later on a time will come when even muslim ummah will become corrupt mm-hmm. and that will be the time when the imam mahdi and the promised messiah will come and he will not change an iota of islamic religion mm-hmm. rather he will just refresh the teachings of islam as they were revealed on the holy prophet of islam prophet muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him and today's history is witness mm-hmm. that the same thing as mentioned by the founder of islam prophet muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him happened all these current muslim leaders i mean i i feel very ashamed to call them muslim leaders because a small group of muslims have been attacked by the enemies and openly they are treating them like like nothing mm-hmm. but the whole ummah um, muslima so called ummah muslima nobody is there to defend them mm-hmm. this has never happened in the history of islam even if a small group of muslims they were being attacked at least all muslims they have to gather on one hand and they have to do whatever they could do to establish peace only in today's time this is ahmadiyya muslim community starting from the founder of ahmadiyya muslim community whenever anything happened against muslim umma they always said and they always guided people that how you should be treating how you should be responding to these things mm-hmm. and this is what is happening today that the leader of ahmadiyya muslim community according to the teachings of islam according to the teachings of prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam he is guiding everybody to unite on this objective that there should not be any war against anyone anywhere in the world mm-hmm. and this is the key aspect we need to remember i think i have to mention this thing that the head of the ahmadiyya muslim community hazrat mirza masoor ahmad clear cut he has said this thing in his last friday sermon this is the time we should all unite and we should stop any kind of war in palestine because in result of that common people children women they are being killed and hmm. this is going to result in a worldwide catastrophe and we have to protect ourselves and our society from that may allah enable us to do so I mean, I mean, uh, Imam Brown, thank you so much, as always, uh, for taking time out for the Drive Time Show. I wish you a fantastic evening, Head. May peace be with you. As-salamu alaykum. Wa alaykum as-salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah as-salamu alaykum. And that was uh, Imam Burhan, um, professor at the Institute mm-hmm. of uh, Theology and Modern Languages, where um, uh, young imams mm. are trained. Mm-hmm. That's their training ground and... Mm. Uh, young brother here, uh, brother Imran, um, is a product mm-hmm. of that institute. I think um, I just want to focus on one couple of points which he mentioned is that you know in the beginning of his um, 
uh, he, he said that Islam, you know, did not spread through through uh, through the sword. And uh, he given the example of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. I think if you look towards uh, his, uh, you know, towards his personality, he himself in history, he himself did not kill a single person. Mm-hmm. Although he fought a, fought a battle um, in a self-defense, but in history you will not find a single example that he is killing someone. Mm. So this is, I think, amazing. In his in his history, he fought nearly twenty uh, three battles, and uh, I was astonished to you know uh, to know that that he did not uh, kill anyone, and uh, and then opponents of Islam saying that the the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him spread the Islam with sword. It's a totally you know totally against his his personality. It is mm-hmm. without a doubt. But mm-hmm. again, you know, as uh, Imam Burhan mentioned the promised messiah the founder mm-hmm. of the Ahmadiyya muslim community on whom be peace mm. that when he came he talked about how it was the end of the sword right it's it's right. time for knowledge right. it's about mm-hmm. unification mm-hmm. and his holiness hazrat mirza masur ahmed the fifth caliph of the promised messiah may allah strengthen his hand when he talked of um muslim countries uniting and the importance of it it's not so they can fight. Mm-hmm. It's so they can have a voice in the world. Right. As Imam Burhan himself said that mm-hmm. the powers that be at the moment, mm-hmm. they're ignoring them. True. They're irrelevant. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea of a collective as a unified nation of Muslims, they will be on equal power. Mm. They will have a voice to negotiate. Mm. People will think twice before they commit any kind of atrocity or any kind of injustice. Mm-hmm. But the important aspect of this unity is to follow the commandments of the Holy Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, mm-hmm. as we have been talking for the past half hour, that there is no better example mm-hmm. of leadership than the Prophet himself, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Absolutely. I think... Um and this example of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, indeed affect uh, the the leaders or the caliphates coming after him. And I would like to bring an example uh, from the Islamic history and the conquest. If we look um, uh, towards the history, Spain was under Islamic rule for around 800 years. And between 711 AD to 1492 AD, and uh, Al-Andalus was the name given by the Muslim who ruled the um, Arabian Peninsula and Iberian Peninsula at, at that time and uh, consisting mainly of southwestern region of Spain. Now, Islam arrived in Spain in um, 711 AD under the orders of the Umayyad Caliphate Al-Walid I and Muslim commander Tariq bin Ziyad led a large army from the north coast of Morocco with his 12,000 troops and he advanced to conquer Spain against the Christian ruler Roderick and his army of 100,000. And Roderick was killed in the battle of, uh, you know, in the battle and Tariq bin Ziyad claimed victory over Spain. Now, aim, his aim was to propagate Islam and the bring the, the, to bring the message of peace to the Europe. Now, with the arrival of Islam revealed the oppression of Spanish citizen at the hand of the Christian ruler Roderick and the significant chances a significant you know change to society was brought now islamic conquest of spain is considered 
one of the greatest conquests in history. In a mere hundred years, Islam has spread from one small city to over three different continents. The very origin of Islam, uh, you know, date all the way back to the early 7th century with the preaching of the message of Islam by the Holy Prophet and peace and blessing of Allah be upon him in Arabia. Despite initial opposition and suffering severe hardship at the hand of non-Muslim, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, con conquered the heart of many and reclaimed Mecca in the year 630. Now, thereafter, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, along with his Muslim followers, began spreading the message of Islam. And soon, the message of Islam had been accepted across the world. You know, you mentioned, <coughs> sorry, it's, it's a small um, intrusion, I apologize. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Spain and, uh -huh. and when you talked of Tariq bin Zayad. Right. Gibraltar. Yeah. Jabrul Tariq. Right. That's where Gibraltar comes from. Comes from, yes. Um, and, you know, this this uh, this phrase and this, uh, this um, sentence that get used that um, when you move forward, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, sometimes when you're in your sticky situation, you say you burn your bridges Frame, and you move forward. Yeah. That that phrase itself comes from absolutely from from the conquest from the, the conquest yeah, yeah. of um, of of when of, yeah exactly mm. because the, the Muslims were of small numbers mm -hmm. and the people they were fighting mm -hmm. were in in was I think ten times the size yes, of absolutely. the Muslim army one hundred thousand and twelve thousand on the other exactly yes. and the ships were and and Tariq bin Ziyad ordered for the ships to be burned. Mm -hmm. mm. And in most normal circumstances, it would demoralize Absolutely. the army. Mm -hmm. But in this instance, mm -hmm. he gave a speech to his soldiers that the only way is moving forward. Mm -hmm. And 12,000 men conquered an army of 100,000 people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And let's not forget that within the uh, Muslim rule in Spain, Al-Andalus, Muslim, Jews and Christian lived side by side. Yes. And it was a time when religion and state were not divided but they were in fact united and since the power of the kingdom was in the hands of the Muslim rulers they abided by the Muslim teaching and many examples can be found where a message of peace is being conveyed within the Holy Quran itself so for example in the Holy Quran Allah the Almighty says that there is no compulsion in in the matter of religion like Rahafiddin and uh, you know there are so many other verses in the Holy Quran which which says that uh, uh, one should not basically force other people to accept Islam. For your, your religion, for, my, for me, my religion. And authenticated historical records show that it was specified that the people who converted to Islam within the kingdom had to be mentally healthy when making their uh, you know, conversion, which demonstrated the fact that there was no compulsion to convert from the Muslim leaders against people of other religions. Now you give the example of Spain and mm -hmm. even uh, Western historians and even if one was to look at uh, the films that are made about Salahuddin Ayyubi or as mm -hmm. the Westerners mm -hmm. like to call him Saladin. Yeah. When he conquered Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He when when the Christians accepted defeat mm -hmm. they were expecting to massacre Salahuddin mm. to massacre mm. everyone within Jerusalem and the reason they were expecting that mm. because their mindset was well that's what we did when we conquered absolutely they even exactly. massacred their own mm -hmm. because <coughs> nobody was was spared Christians mm. Muslims Jews they massacred everyone when they conquered mm -hmm. so they were expecting revenge from Salahuddin mm -hmm. 
but when he said no you have accepted defeat you have mm. surrendered mm-hmm. so anybody who wants to leave in peace is allowed to leave but if anybody wants to stay mm-hmm. irrespective of your faith right you are you are welcome to stay and mm. and practice your faith in accordance with your teachings and nobody will say Beautiful. anything to you Beautiful. which mm. was and when he was asked this he said because this was the way of the prophet may the peace and blessings of allah be upon him Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Again, we we heard an example of Caliph Umar mm-hmm. by uh, by Imam Burhan mm-hmm. that uh, th- that when uh, Caliph Umar um, he was known for um, for his mercy and for his justice. Uh, mm-hmm. for his justice. Mm-hmm. So there are so many examples we can give mm-hmm. um, of of great Muslim leadership, but it's not great because of wars. Mm-hmm. It's great because of human rights. The founder of human rights too. Mm-hmm. The Holy Prophet may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. I would challenge anyone to call me and tell me there was someone different or before mm-hmm. the Holy Prophet may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him who had a charter for humanity. Mm-hmm. No one did. Mm-hmm. He's the founder of it. Justice for everyone irrespective of your faith. Mm-hmm. When he was the leader of Medina, he used when the Jews used to come to him for justice, he would give them the choice you you would like to be judged by in accordance with your teaching mm-hmm. or the teaching of the holy quran yeah the choice was given justice and that's what's missing today i think i'm glad you bring the example of the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him so when he conquered makkah because they basically uh, basically broke the truce with, yes. the, with the muslims that's so right. that's why the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him led the army uh, in the in the makkah and when he conquered makkah there was no big fight except for the small fight you know there was no big fight he conquered makkah peacefully and when he conquered makkah he said la tasrib alaykum al yawm that today today there will be no blame uh, for you and we have to remember that these were the people who were persecuting the innocent muslims and they were killing the ch- innocent children and uh, the, the women and these were the people who basically forced the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam to migrate to medina but again when the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam got the power he did not treat them in a similar way rather what he said he said yaghfirullah lakum wa huwa arhamur rahimin that may allah forgive you and he is the most merciful of those who show mercy and there's another very beautiful example that you know uh, when the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam uh, peace and blessings of allah be upon him conquered makkah his greatest enemy abu jahl and his son ikrama you know he fled uh, makkah to and went to abyssinia that you know uh, he he was a f- he, had, he had a fear that you know the holy prophet may kill him modern day ethiopia uh, yeah modern ethiopia so his wife uh, went to the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him and said that you know i want to bring my husband back and he he does not want to accept islam so how the holy prophet sallam give him the permission yeah, you can do so and when he uh, ikrama c- came back to uh, and uh, presented himself in front of the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and said that you know i came here but i will not accept islam you know what the holy prophet replied that okay you're free to practice your own religion and or on hearing this he said if this is the islam i'll accept islam so basically islam spread through the the winnings uh, spread through the winning the hearts of other people not through the sword and this was the this was the basically influence of the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him that that you know uh, the 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 leader 
coming after the Holy Prophet they showed similar kind of mercy and uh, just towards their uh, you know subjects and people I'm sure you will correct me here when California I think there was a conquest I can't recall mm-hmm. which city it was when um, <coughs> after the conquest he went to pray and I think it was yes. a church yes and Jerusalem yeah. and, and when he was going to be uh, everybody was expecting him to pray in the church he yes. was actually offered yes to pray in the church and he said no take I would like to pray away mm-hmm. from the church absolutely because he because he felt it would be unjust mm-hmm. to pray in the church because he also knew that he was worried that it might create some mm-hmm. kind of tradition um, or uh, or um, uh, and people might think that in future that is how mm-hmm. people would react because they would refer to Caliph Umar's action of mm-hmm. going into the church but yes. he wanted to protect the sanctity and the belief of mm-hmm. uh, um, of the Christians mm-hmm. so he decided to pray away mm-hmm. from the mosque and that was based on respecting the other's religion and to give a sign and a teaching to the Muslims mm-hmm. that this is how true Islam is practiced mm-hmm. you said no compulsion in Islam yeah he was mm-hmm. that's what he was doing Beautiful. I mean, uh, not only this, but, you know, Hazrat Umar, may Allah be pleased with him, the Caliph Umar, granted the safety of Christian churches, monasteries and religious sites. And he explicitly, you know, he ex- explicitly ordered that they not they should not be harmed. And in that list of places, mm-hmm. mosque was at the end. Absolutely. There was a reason mm-hmm. why he said the mosque in the end, because he wanted to give the significance, that message to the Muslim to protect the other's place Absolutely. of worship. Absolutely. And and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, yeah. both Christians and Jews at that time, were guaranteed protection. And I think uh, we'll more talk about this on this topic uh, uh, in uh, for, um, our next with our next scholar, who is um, a missionary of Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Imam Zafir Sahib. Um, welcome to the Drive Time Show. As-salamu alaykum. Peace be upon you. Wa alaykum as-salam. Jazakum having me. Uh, thank you so much for your timing and coming on the Dramatam show. So we are discussing about uh, the, you know, the um, uh, the Islamic leadership and the uh, Muslims rulers. And in that, we can you explain that about the peace treaty of Jerusalem and uh, that Hazrat Umar, may Allah be pleased with him, the second uh, Caliph of Islam, um, made when he conquered the city in uh, 636 AD. Yes, uh, that's right. So, um, uh, if we take a look at in history, um, this is quite a, a astonishing and actually a, a brilliant moment mm-hmm. um, to see how religious freedom is exercised. Because we saw that in the life of the Holy Prophet throughout his life, he did that. Right, right. He made he made peace treaties with the Jews. He even made peace treaties with the with the pagans, the the Quraysh of Mecca, mm-hmm. just so that there could be peace established, so that they can peacefully spread the message of Islam. Mm-hmm. Now we come to uh, after the demise of the Holy Prophet, now, of course, the Muslim empire started to expand. And when we come to the life of the second caliph, uh, Umar bin al-Khattab, anhu, uh, peace be upon him, he, he, in his time, the Muslims had conquered most of Palestine, mm-hmm. with the exception of Jerusalem okay. and another, another city called Qaysariya. So these two cities were left. So when the Muslims reached um, Jerusalem, they besieged the city. And uh, this was approximately in the year 15 or 16 Hijri, so 16 years after the migration. 
And when they besieged it, it took about six months. And when, after giving, as in essentially the the, the patriarch of Jerusalem, Bishop Sophronius, mm-hmm. he uh, surrendered the city on the condition that the the caliph, Omar himself, would come and accept the, the treaty uh, and sign the pact. Mm-hmm. So now, of course, this is a bit of a predicament. Remember now, in those days, there was no cars, there were no planes. So from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to, to Medina, where the Hazrat Umar was residing, quite a big distance. So even to just to send the messenger over, mm-hmm. it, it takes a long time. So in any case, the, when uh, uh, Caliph Umar received the news that this is what the terms of the condition was, of the treaty was, he, he sought um, guidance, counsel on his from his companions around him, and they all said that they, you should go. Mm-hmm. So when the, the the beauty in this entire account is the way um, Hazrat Umar arrived in Jerusalem. Now, if you can imagine, he's the, the victor of Jerusalem. It, it's a very holy city mm-hmm. for the Jews, for the Christians, for the Muslims. Remember, Muslims were praying towards uh, Jerusalem for uh, all the way up until the migration, or even 16 months after that, right? right. So it's it's a very holy city for for all three religions. So Hazrat Umar has just defeated um, the Byzantines there. Mm-hmm. And how does he come with an army, with a procession, or with you know banging drums? Not not really, not at all. So in some in some of the narrations of um, in, in some of the biographical accounts, we find that uh, Hazrat Umar went with just one slave. That's some accounts. Some accounts say that he went with a small group of companions, uh, the Mahajirin and the Ansar. So some of the, the uh, companions, some of those from Medina. So it, rather than like uh, arriving, um, you know, seated on a camel or anything, mm-hmm. it, some of the accounts say that actually he was the one pulling the reins of the camel because the servant was sitting on top. And when Bishop Sophonius saw this, he was uh, amazed that the caliph is mm-hmm. pushing the camel. He's the one holding the reins of the camel. And when he, asked, when he asked him, why were you doing this? He said, this is my servant. We take time uh, riding the camel and, you know, oh. so that none, neither of us get tired. Mm-hmm. So this is the way Umar, radiallahu anhu, is entering Jerusalem as mm-hmm. a conqueror, wearing robes, which he would normally wear in Medina, mm-hmm. which had patches on them, just like, uh, you know, there was no fancy garments, no, mm-hmm. you know, lavish, uh, you know, attire that he was wearing. He was wearing a very simple, the things that he would wear normally in Medina. Right. And in comparison, Bishop Sophronius is clad in gold from head to toe. <laughs> he's, he's the bishop, you know, the patriarch of, of Jerusalem, a mm-hmm. very prominent position. Mm-hmm. And obviously seeing this, uh, this scene had an immense impact on him. And in fact, when um, Hazrat Umar got there, he signed the peace treaty and the, the, the treaty Terms. I just want to read out quickly, if you mm-hmm. allow me, just a, yeah, sure. a small, small part of it, because it's, it's slightly long. But it's very important because people should understand mm-hmm. that this is how Muslims went to different places, and when they occupied them, absolute certain you know, safety of uh, churches, places of worship, people, civilians was granted. Mm-hmm. And this is what Hazrat Umar said. This is the actual treaty that was signed. Okay. So it it reads, and I quote. In the name of God, the gracious, the merciful. This is the assurance of safety, which the servant of God, Umar, the leader of the faithful, has given to the people of Ilya. And Ilya was the older name of Jerusalem. An assurance of safety is granted for themselves, for their wealth, their churches, their crosses, the sick and the healthy of the city, and their entire nation. No one shall reside in their churches or homes, 
nor will they be destroyed. The boundaries of their homes and churches will not be reduced, and nor will their crosses or wealth be destroyed. There will be no compulsion upon them in matters of faith, nor will they be given any trouble. Hmm. And of course, it goes on and mentions the fact that they will pay, the residents will pay the jizya, because that's that's the tax imposed upon non-Muslim citizens of a um, Muslim state. Hmm. And actually, um, the Muslims also pay zakat, etc. So it's... This jizya is for the assurance of of their safety and for you know protection of of their lives. This this, this part is very important that mm-hmm. none of their boundaries will be reduced. So then the Muslims aren't going going to occupy land from them. Their churches won't be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Nothing, no, everyone will live exactly how they are. They will be allowed to live there, but under Muslim rule, they will just pay the jizya. Right. Anyone who doesn't want to comply to these terms, they're free to leave. Passage of safety was granted to them. So the Byzantines, the occupiers, were granted safety to leave the city. And in fact, Umar gave them the opportunity to take whatever they could as long as they can carry it. So that means wealth, gold, all that thing that they could have taken, they, they, were, they took them with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my question is that which uh, conquering army does that? Hmm. It's, it's unprecedented, I mean, aside from Islamic history that we true, see true. in the Holy Prophet's time. And again, in the four rightly guided caliphs, we see this throughout. So this is the, the terms of the treaty that was set up by Hazrat Umar, who, and, and that's a perfect example of what the, the Quranic verse states as well, is that fighting was only permitted so that freedom of religion can prevail. Hmm. And in fact, mosques, churches, synagogues were all granted safety by Islam. Hmm, great. So, um, Imam Zafir, uh, what stark differences do we see in Islamic leadership from the golden age of Islam to today when it comes to the rights of oppressed of, of the oppressed one? I mean, the, hmm. a, a classic example, I mean, it depends what you mean by golden age, right? Because hmm. for many people, the golden age of Islam will be the the the, the era when, you know, the, 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 science, the science and flourishing, yeah. everything was... Yeah was flourishing in, yeah. in Baghdad and likes of, you know, under the Umayyad mm-hmm. Caliphate. But the, the, the thing is, indeed it was, that was a, a material golden age was, mm-hmm. was, was certainly that era. But if, if you understand, mm-hmm. the real golden age in terms of spiritual advancement was the era of the Holy Prophet Definitely. and the time of the rightly guided caliphs, the mm-hmm. four rightly guided caliphs. And in their example is what we can see and it can be a solution to how we, you know, deal with others as well. The Holy Prophet was a champion for uh, the, the oppressed. In mm-hmm. fact, he, he was the one that would give... You know, the Islam actually encouraged the rights of those slaves who were treated like worse than animals. Mm-hmm. So, th- in, right from the outset, Islam has stressed that the oppressed and the oppressor should be helped. And this is something I wanted to mention in light of what the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has been uh, mentioning and highlighting in all of his sermons, Hazrat Mirza Musur Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, Mm-hmm. And every time, every time he he uh, speaks to world leaders, um, he mentions this point, and it, it's it's a, it's a beautiful point that the Pro- Prophet sallallahu mentioned that the it is the job of a Muslim to help the oppressor mm-hmm. and the oppressed. So the, even the companions were a bit concerned about how you're supposed to help the oppressor. You can understand how you help the oppressed. Right. But the Holy Prophet said that you have to help the oppressor by stopping them from transgressing in the in their ways. Mm-hmm. And you know that that that's a that's a way that we can um, establish peace in the world as well. And and it's highlighted beautifully by the the sermons of of 
the current head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Muhammad, wherever he goes, wherever he speaks, he mentions the dispensation of absolute justice. And even in, in the ongoing war that we see uh, of today, we can see, you know, the, the lack of this justice mm-hmm. is leading to innocent people being killed on both sides. And, mm-hmm. and, and in fact, again, the, the, there is no uh, justice in, in terms of how it's being reported, but I guess that's another another debate altogether. Thank you so much, um, Imam Zafar, for com- for your timing and uh, giving us the insight of on this topic. Um, uh, peace be upon him. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. His Holiness, Hazrat uh, Mirza Masur Ahmed, uh, the fifth caliph of the Promised Messiah, may Allah strengthen his hand, said, The Muslim countries must unite as one, with one voice. If they speak as one voice, it is said that there are 53 to 54 countries. They will become a powerful force in the world, and they will have a stronger impact. Otherwise, individual voices here and there are of no consequence. This is one of the ways to establish peace in the world and end this war. Thus, to save the world from destruction, Muslim countries must strive Mm -hmm. to fulfill their role. May God Almighty, Allah Almighty, enable them to do so. And and may Allah Almighty, you know, give justice Mm -hmm. to the poor, innocent, um, occupied Palestinians. Um, May God Almighty... um, Give them ex- the, the strength and the patience that they've been showing mm. to fulfill what they mm. want. And, you know, we are coming up to the hour. I just mm. want to finish mm-hmm. about a small question and, and, and a statement that was sent by a young Palestinian to the Turkish television. Okay. He said, I am in Palestine. I am in Gaza mm. and I am alive. Mm. But my message to the Arab world and the Muslim world is that, yes, I am alive. But no one hear me that you are dead. Mm. Hmm. This is from a young Beautiful. Muslim from Gaza hmm. who sent this message to message to 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 the Muslim world. Hmm. Uh, may God Almighty um, enable them to listen. We're going to go back. Uh, we're going to go to the five o'clock news. Uh, we'll join you straight after these breaks. to the Voice of Islam Radio. A new station, the Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the Voice of Islam. Welcome back to Monday afternoon Draft Time Show with myself, Kayyum, and uh, Brother Imran. We have been talking about Muslim leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I know we quickly finished, but I, I just wanted to, um, before we go on to the next topic. Right. Oh, I, I finished off uh, in a rush about this message, dissent, but I just wanted to, to, to share the impact mm-hmm. of this international television station when they read this message out. Right. And it was absolute silence hmm. that there was this young guy who is saying that he's standing in the middle of this destroyed Gaza. Hmm. Yet he's saying, look, yeah. this is what's happened. And then there was this other message hmm. that was sent. And I saw this on LinkedIn hmm. uh, where this young guy, he had a bottle of water in his hand and he said, I thank God that he's allowed me to have this bottle. Hmm. This bottle, which is full of water, it's got sewage water in it. But I thank God that this water has been given to me by God Almighty. Hmm. And then he says, but my message is to the Muslim world Hmm. and to the Arab nations that I thank God and and maybe God will give me Jannah, Hmm. give me paradise if I I was to die in this bombardment. Hmm. But remember, you are also you will be answerable for your silence hmm. when you see these atrocities that are, are are being hurled upon Gaza in in the hmm. most inhumane way. Hmm. Definitely. I mean, that is why the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, said that help the one who is being oppressed and the one who is oppressing. And the companion said, how? He said, stop the oppressing hand. Which is so, what His Holiness yeah. reiterated a couple of sermons ago. Yes, Absolutely. That that you know, it, it's it is important hmm. that when you see somebody oppressing hmm. someone, hmm. then it is your responsibility hmm. as a Muslim to hmm. stop that. Absolutely. Hmm. But, but moving on to the to to the topic of the hour, we are talking about artificial intelligence. We are asking a question on the Instagram story, which is: Are you concerned about the negative effects? Um, I know on Instagram it says Al. If you don't know Al, <laughs> it's no. We're not talking to you, Ali. No, it's it's artificial <laughs> intelligence. It's AI. Mm-hmm. Uh, and up till now, seventy-seven percent of the of the respondents have said that they are concerned about the negative wow. um, effects of AI. Um, I think there's too much at the moment. Yeah. Uh, well, people are giving a negative uh, narrative to mm-hmm. AI, mm-hmm. Uh, and of course. Um, there are some positives, mm-hmm. so I think it's it's good to balance mm-hmm. the, the 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 discussion. Yeah. We've got some fantastic guests um, uh, who are going to be shedding some light and giving us some insight mm-hmm. um, on where the future goes. Yeah. But before we do that, and before I hand over to you mm-hmm. and and for you to give us the gist and the detail of mm-hmm. what this uh, um, what this hour is going to be about, right? You know, there is this again misconception that Islam is ancient is old it was relevant 1400 years ago Mm -hmm. but it's important to say that Islam is the most progressive religion that ever has been and ever will be Mm. and it encourages Mm. progression it um, it adopts and 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 uh, and is telling people Mm. to further research if one was to look at and listen to the sermons of the 
of His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed V, Caliph of the Promised Messiah. May Allah strengthen his hand. He is telling more and more people to go into research. Research, yeah. But one of the most astonishing things what people might not know, and mm. our listener might not know, mm. that every time there's a discovery, mm. be it scientific, be it technological, mm. people are able to find a verse which is related to that discovery within the Holy Quran. Yeah. Which proves that this book of God Almighty, it is a book of mm. God Almighty, and it is relevant till the end of time because no matter, there are so many things written in that mm. about the progress and the uh, and the 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 development of the the mind of the human being mm. and the new discoveries that are coming, that 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 no matter how fast and how forward and how progressive you get, mm. it will be relevant because it is science. Uh, and technology falls within the realm of the teachings of Islam and Definitely. God Almighty. Definitely, this is this is what the make this is what makes Islam a universal religion. I guess. That's right. And uh, if we talk about you know the current topic, AI, and uh, in our daily lives, there is a silent mastermind arranging a symphony of innovation, artificial intelligence. AI spins the tracks of organization as it sorts through our emails with the skills of a radio presenter selecting the perfect song picture your virtual assistant as a radio presenter of your own personal station tuning into your request and harmonizing with your needs ai is also uh, your co-pilot on the commute steering through traffic with the clarity of a skilled navigator however as AI proceeds to effortlessly twist itself into the fabric of our existence, will the result of this include the extinction of specific jobs? Allah the Almighty says in chapter 2, verse 198, and furnish yourself with necessities, with necessary provisions, and surely the best provision is righteousness. As we being uh, to explore the uses of AI and the surfacing uh, you know, uh, consequences, we should consider whether the use of AI is necessary in our life and is it possible for us to exist without it? Does the utilization of AI align with your moral principle or not? Um, I think, um, you know, if we, in the, in the beginning of the show, um, you also uh, mentioned that, you know, you asked the question to the to, to GP that, that what are the famous leaders? Uh, in the world, I guess the AI in this day and age, uh, especially um, you know when uh, after the uh, after when ChatGTP become famous, um, you know normal people they are so much relying on ChatGPT asking questions, making the scripts, radio scripts, and uh, you know just normal questions, analysis. We are I think um, heavily relying on the AI. What do you think? Um, look, from an artificial intelligence point of view, mm. the, the AI will only give you an answer from information that is on the system, mm -hmm. that is actually taking information out from. Right. So, end of the day, it doesn't matter what you ask. What matters is who's, who's, who's inputting the data Definitely. Mm. in the system. Mm. And that's where... I would say the real concern lies. Mm. My concern is that this is not regulated. Mm. Nobody is overlooking these companies like 
uh, Bard from Google, like okay. ChatGPT, mm. be it one, two, three, four, mm. um, Watson from IBM. There's so many different. A lot of people don't realize that it's not just one mm. um, uh, system that people can and can jump onto. But the encouraging thing is, I did a show with uh, with um, um, technicians and and experts mm-hmm. from IBM, um, mm. and they're actually promoting and they're discussing the regulation of the industry. They're saying that there is a responsibility um, upon the experts to ensure that there is a regulatory framework that everybody must adhere to. Mm-hmm. And I think um, some some months ago, or if it was a year ago, that there was this letter that was published in the newspaper which was included Elon Musk, mm-hmm. who gave a warning or who advised people to slow down that this progression within artificial intelligence was so was too fast for people people to to deal with the 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 pace that is being introduced definitely yeah but um, you know it is something that is coming mm-hmm. we talk about self-driving cars we talk about um, you know people losing their jobs because artificial intelligence is going to take over um but I think let's go and talk to our guest who can who can uh, um, shed more uh, qualified light on mm. this topic. Absolutely. I think we have our uh, first guest. Uh, okay, Isabella. I'm, I'm really sorry if I'm pronouncing your name uh, wrong. Uh, Stanford uh, student and AI activist. Uh, welcome to the Drive Room Show. Peace be upon you. I think... Um, can you can you hear us okay you? I think we might be having a technical problem. Yes, Good so afternoon okay can you hear us now? Dennis from the University of Manchester. Ah. Sorry we have. Yeah, so we've got Dr. Louise Dennis with us. Okay. Okay, I think we'll have a different um second guest actually. Um and uh, we are talking about AI and the advancement of uh, AI. So what is the algorithmic uh, bias and how does it, uh, you know, uh, manifest in AI system? Can you provide some real world examples? Um, Yes, of course. So algorithmic bias is a problem that combines a social problem with a technical problem. So it's what happens when biases that have long existed in society that affect certain groups, such as underprivileged or marginalized communities, um, and its technical facet happens when those biases get into the algorithms that we use to make decisions and uh, the outcomes of the decisions made by those algorithms. Mm-hmm. So it's not specifically an artificial intelligence problem. We've had this problem for a long time, but the use of artificial intelligence has very much exacerbated this problem. Um, right. And it was first highlighted by um, two researchers called... Um, Joy Bolamwini and Timnit Gebru in a mm-hmm. paper called Gender Shades. And that showed that facial recognition systems are particularly bad at distinguishing one black woman from another. Mm-hmm. So if you can imagine you have some kind of facial recognition system, you're trying to pick certain people out from a crowd, then it's very likely to say, oh, well, this black woman is the black woman we're looking for, when in fact she isn't. because it's very bad at distinguishing those faces. Hmm. And that arose because the data sets used to train this algorithm didn't have many 
black female faces in mm-hmm. them. And so there was like a gap in the data. So that's mm-hmm. an example of these sorts of systems. Right. Um, mm-hmm. We also see the same thing happening in systems used for um, triaging CVs for recruitment. Mm-hmm. So if you're an organization, you get a whole load of CVs and some job and you want to throw an algorithm at them to winnow them down to a few that you're going to consider, then we see bias getting into those algorithms. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. If, even if you anonymize the CVs, they pick up other information. So Amazon had an example where it was using an AI system and it realized it was screening out female applicants and it was picking up on whether they'd been to an all-female college or they had um, uh, been in an all-female sports team or something like that. And it then wasn't putting those CVs forward. And that was because historically... Amazon had tended to favor male applicants over female applicants, and that was in the data that they had trained the algorithm on, and so that bias was being reflected in the algorithm they were used, and Amazon had to switch off this algorithm and use Mm. something different. Mm. Great. So, Dr. Lewis, how can algorithm bias impact society and individuals, and what are the potential consequences of biased AI uh, algorithms? So, I mean, obviously, just from the examples I've given, you can see that it has impacts on people's employment um, opportunities. Um, if it's used in, for instance, credit scoring, it has impacts on your ability to access loans. Such algorithms have been used to give advice to judges in sentencing and parole decisions, so that can affect people's um, liberty. Um, so as you can imagine, this has a kind of profound effect on people's lives, And because they can be skewed towards underprivileged and minority communities, then it has a disproportionate effect on people who already face um, uh, discrimination in their everyday lives. Mm-hmm. And obviously that has a one. If we want a fair and equal society, then obviously it acts against aspirations that we have. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Lewis... Um Are there regulatory measures in place to address algorithm bias and do they go uh, far enough to protect against biased AI systems? So at the moment, regulation is very much in its infancy. So um, the General Data Protection Regulation, so that's GDPR, which your listeners may have heard of, that gives a what's called a data subject. So mm-hmm. that's you and me if our data is being used in an algorithm. Um, the right not to be subject to a decision based solely on automated processing. Um, so this has legal effects, um, though there are some exceptions to when it can be used. But obviously you have to know that this is what's happening and then say, you know, you, you want a human to be involved in that um, decision. Right, right. There are a number of draft acts, both in the US and the EU. Um, for instance, the EU draft AI Act says it's the unacceptable, um, so it categorizes AI systems into unacceptable and those are banned outright, high risk limited risk and or risk. First they categorize how these algorithms are going to be used. And then for instance, in the high risk category, and this covers things like employment, welfare, credit scoring, law enforcement, lots of these examples, I've already talked about it. Then it has a list of requirements that an AI system must reach. So that includes things like risk management, mm-hmm. what was the status of the data that was used to train the algorithm, 
What's the cybersecurity being involved to protect the data? And it requires human oversight and transparency. But obviously, that's just a draft. That's not actually in force at the moment. Right. And we've yet to see how it works in practice. Doc- Dr. Dennis, with, with all the, the, the items you've listed, the, the thought that comes to mind is that there is a serious need for regulation here, which is missing. What's your take, on, what's your take on that? So I actually missed that. You broke up. I missed the start. Sorry, I said with, with, with all the things you've listed uh, and with all the concerns that there are out there about AI and yeah. with with recent updates and, and I've had the opportunity to speak to um, uh, some stakeholders, the concern is that there needs to be regulation of AI or the providers or uh, of AI. Do you think that's something that is that's something that uh, is going to happen or do you think governments would be interested in doing something of that nature? Um, I think governments are very interested in providing regulation. I think there's a big question about what is appropriate regulation. For instance, um, we can regulate that an AI should be able to explain its decision, mm-hmm. but technically we don't really know how to deliver that. Yes. <laughs> so understanding what is possible technically is an important part of the regulatory process because there are obviously huge benefits also in using AI algorithms. You know, there are documented benefits, for instance, for the use in healthcare, in diagnosis from medical imaging. So we don't want to stop those. So in fact, what we need at the moment are regulations around good practice in terms of the data that's used, where that's come from, does it represent everybody fairly, is it subject to historic bias? If we're worried about historic bias, what mitigations do you have in place to make sure that doesn't impact on the people about whom decisions are being made? So when I went to the beginning and I said it's partly a social problem and partly a technical problem, we need our regulations to acknowledge this and talk about the social processes around the development and deployment of these algorithms and how we protect people from the adverse effects of them. Now, you're a lecturer at the University of Manchester. How do you know your students haven't used AI? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, mean, I mean, the short answer is you can't always be sure. Um, mm. There is a tendency for the if a students used one of these generative AI tools like ChatGPT to produce an answer. It tends to be quite sort of vague and generic mm-hmm. so you'll read it and you think this isn't quite answering the question I asked um, and often it sounds quite like management speak in a way it's quite quite keen on a kind of I summarize what the problem is then I give you five bullet points and then I kind of summarize again so you you sort of get a sense of where it might come from of course, it can be very difficult to prove that someone used generative AI. And if you're going into disciplinary process, you want to be very certain that you're only catching someone who tried to cheat rather than someone who's not very good at writing an essay or something like that. So that's very difficult. What we have been developing here at the University of Manchester is a code of conduct in the use of generative AI in coursework. And so that has requirements that students should state if they've used it. They should explain how they used it. Um, 
With generative AI, there's always a risk that it tells you something false. So they need to say how they fact-checked the information they got out of the AI. So what we're hoping to do is create a culture in their students so that they know when they can use this and how they can use it and how they can use it ethically and what the risks are. And finally, I'm going to reverse the question. <laughs> are you, as professors, as an institution, worried about AI delivering the information to students? Or do you think AI is going to make your student a bit more lazy and, and, and there will be a lack of understanding of the topic? It's, it's very hard to know. Um, I think at the moment, because AIs do sometimes give the wrong information. So, so just after ChatGPT came out last year, I told my students that they could use it in a coursework mm -hmm. and they had to design an experiment and they had to state a hypothesis. And it was for a very well-known thing. So this wasn't a, a mysterious hypothesis. And for the ones who used it, about two-thirds of them, it gave the right hypothesis and about one-third, it gave the wrong hypothesis. So <laughs> I think for those ones, it was quite a salutary lesson that you, know, you have to fact-check this thing yourself. Um, but these things are getting better and better all the time. So at the moment, it's very bias-aware. And if you want to use one of these and you want to be sure it's giving you the right information, you have to go away and check it. And from my point of view, you probably then understand the topic. You just use ChatGPT or something to help you get your thoughts organized and to write it down. So I'm sort of satisfied with that. But of course, if we look down the road five years, if these things become much more accurate, then it would be a genuine concern. Do I have a student here who actually understands the topic mm -hmm. or do I have a student who can just use ChatGPT? And I, sadly, I think if we get to that point, we'll go back to using exams much more than coursework because in an exam, yeah. yep. you can disconnect them from the internet and say, no, you have to write this down yourself. And we know that some students do much worse than exams, even though they're just as able as other students. So we like to keep mixed modes of assessment. But yeah, if these tools get much better, we may be forced back into relying much more heavily on exams, which I think would be a shame. Fantastic. Dr. Louise Dennis, Senior Lecturer in Computer Science at the University of Manchester. Thank you so much for taking time out this afternoon and coming on to the Drive Time Show. Wish you a fantastic evening ahead. May peace be with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Interesting, no? Mm -hmm. That AI is mm -hmm. it's here, mm. and lecturers are using it. Mm. Um, it's good to. See, it's also good to hear that. Um, I think it's good that lecturers are um, encouraging students mm -hmm. to do assignments and um, and and getting the feel of yes, artificial true. intelligence. But let's go to um, uh, our, our uh, next guest, who is. Um, Okizu Bell, who we introduced earlier. Good afternoon. <laughs> um, Assalamualaikum and peace be on you. And thank you for taking time out and coming on to the Drive Time Show, uh, Okizu. Please correct me if I am mispronouncing your name. Yeah, he's a, a Stanford student and AI activist. Good Hello. afternoon. So great uh, to be on this call today. Hi, Okizu. Can you hear us? Yep. Hi, it's great to be on this uh, call today, and I'm so excited to talk 
a little bit more about AI and education as well. Thank you so much for taking time and coming on to the show for us. Um, can you tell us what artificial... Well, I mean, artificial intelligence has made significant investment, and we were just talking to a senior lecturer at uh, a university. Can you share some of the, the, the exciting and impactful applications uh, that are being introduced um, of artificial intelligence that you've actually experienced? And, and also kind of shed some light on how this is going to change various industries across the board. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think one of the biggest developments we've seen today is the movement forward of uh, AI chatbots and AI language models because they've become so robust to the point where they're able to interpret more abstract concepts such as discrete mathematics and they're also beginning to understand or at least emulate understanding of uh, more advanced topics and, and, and nuanced areas such as writing and historical analysis and even being able to analyze pieces of writing um, through synthesis. So looking at multiple pieces of content and sort of stringing together unique ideas that are found mm-hmm. across those pieces. Right. So these simulators are, are becoming very, very advanced. And I think you know, on top of that, we're also seeing the development and acceleration of hardware, which has been the main limiting factor in AI, where we're creating neuromorphic chips and designing differential programming languages to make it easier to design AI models, or at least structuring our engineering tools around building AI, which previously, you know, creating these non-hard-coded models was not something that was easily facilitated by our classical programming languages or by our hardware. So, by now developing new hardware and new software tools to be able to develop AI and streamline that process is also really important. And companies like Cohere, NVIDIA, and more are sort of working on this type of technology. Right. Kizu, um, 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 how uh, can we ensure responsible development and use of AI, especially in light of concern like bias and privacy issues? And what measures can protect ordinary people from the misuse of AI in propaganda uh, effort by governments and organizations? Yeah, I think that one of the best ways to prevent harms facilitated by AI technologies is to directly engage stakeholders to have broad public participation mm-hmm. when it comes to AI development and deployment. And so that's why I founded the organization Fidutom, where one of the largest civil society groups mobilizing for responsible technology with over 1,500 members across 50-plus states, municipalities, countries, etc. And so it's really important that we have that diverse representation when it comes to developing AI models. And I think too often the general public and even civil society is left out of the technical process of implementing and sort of pushing new technology into new communities. And so by having a group that is very actively focused on the technical and developmental side of AI, we can ensure that there is adequate sort of understanding and, and stakeholder recognition while it, during the process of these models being developed as opposed to sort of looking back retrospectively after harms have been engendered by the technology and trying to figure out ways that we can remediate those issues. So I think it's really important that people are involved in the design process more generally. And when people are involved, we can make all those considerations about how can this technology be misused or be targeted to a specific community mm-hmm. or can it be retrofitted to be used by diverse demographics with lower digital literacy. That Those are ways that we prevent all of these issues when it comes to misinformation and 
you know, unfair surveillance and data leaks. And when we do that, we can then coordinate with government and say, how do we use policy to align with our developmental goals? So mm-hmm. really streamlining that process and, and making all the players sort of work in linearity as opposed to having all these disjoint groups that are have different, oftentimes competing interests, which then just leads to infighting within the community as well as issues with regards to uh, their development cycles as well. All right. So the debate on the impact of uh, AI on the job market is ongoing. And uh, what are your thoughts on how AI is reshaping the workforce and how can individuals and businesses prepare for these changes? Yeah, I think the AI in the job market is a very two-pronged and excuse me, a nuanced idea because you know, on on one side, AI can be extremely beneficial for the job market because it's opening up the opportunity for upskilling and digital literacy, allowing for people to work in the age of automation, doing more meaningful and tangible work, but at the same time being compensated more handsomely for it. For example, someone who previously worked in a factory could then transition to manning machines that automate the factory work. Not only will factory production be more efficient and reduce the chances of, you know, workers being working in unsafe work environments or being harmed by machinery, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but it'll also give them the opportunity to be able to, you know, sort of earn more money on a, on a, a on a more proportionate basis to the work that they're doing um, and reduce, hopefully reduce worker exploitation within, particularly within uh, fields that can be easily automated. But then at the same time, there's also this issue of the fact that AI is extremely reliant on data and oftentimes when it's built, it's this issue called Potemkin or imitation AI, where essentially the AI is powered by humans that are working as machines. And so it largely defeats the purpose of having an automated sort of self-intelligent technology in the first mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times what we're seeing is the emergence of these digital sweatshops where, you know, large companies are having humans annotate millions and millions and millions of, of, of data that they've collected that need to be fed into their AI models. And they're being paid less than, minimum wage. We saw this with OpenAI, with ScaleAI, with Facebook and more. So no, no, very few large tech companies that are working on AI have been able to absolve themselves of this very harmful industry practice. And right. I imagine if there's not some sort of government crackdown on digital sweatshopping, mm-hmm. that as AI models continue to proliferate, we'll see increased worker exploitation just on other different flavors. So I think that it comes with its harms and benefits. It promises automation, speed-ups, better working conditions, but then at the same time, it often requires the exploitation of already vulnerable groups, and on mm-hmm. top of that, groups that are in the bottom billion are very unlikely to receive the necessary upskilling to actually take over these, these new jobs that will be emerging. So I think the job market in AI is one that is socioeconomically disparate, as we can expect with any new technology, and so it's going to require public participation, the intervention of academics and government collaboration to be able to figure out schema that ensures that, you know, everyone is is capable of thriving in this new economy. Right. And I think that, you know, there have been pushes for AI-funded UBI. We were able to collaborate with the um, Future of Life Institute on their Roomfall Trust. AI companies are going to be accruing so much money that there's a potential that they could pay every citizen on Earth um, some sort of sustainable income. So... That could mm-hmm. be one solution of, of many. So it's a, it's a really interesting sort of future to look forward to. Right, right. Now, 
AI and machine learning are often seen as, you know, uh, black box boxes and making it difficult for the general public to understand how decisions are made. Uh, how can we enhance transparency and, you know, accountability in AI systems? Yeah, for one, I think engaging with some of City Tom's resources, we, uh, for the U.S. government, we actually put together these briefings that were, or these policy memos that contained sort of different technical breakdowns of all the nine topics of Majority Leader Schumer's AI Insight Forums. We got excellent responses from so many of the offices about how they're using it, um, and hopefully that's a foray into continued engagement more deeply with the U.S. government. But then outside of that, I think that one of the best ways to educate yourself is by using and interacting with these AI tools. ChatGPT is actually an excellent resource to right. describe and even sometimes provide visual references to what AI is and how it works. And at the same time, not only are you educating yourself on the topic, but you're also increasing your literacy with the tool itself. Um, mm -hmm. So it's definitely like a killing two birds with one stone situation if you use AI to learn about AI. And I think what's excellent about these tools is their dynamic learning responses. Like if you don't understand something and you vocalize that to the AI, it can tweak and change its sort of delivery modality to your needs. So I think that's something that's really excellent about these models. Yes, they have a tendency to hallucinate and sometimes be mm -hmm. easily coaxed into producing and sometimes even spewing incorrect or offensive rhetoric. But largely, I think that they're very effective tools when it comes to, to learning and constantly adapting your learning process and personalizing it. And I think it's one of the best ways you can learn some of the basics regarding AI, along with online available courses, along with watching YouTube videos. Mm -hmm. uh, 3 Blue 1 Brown offers excellent tutorials, especially if you want to get into the sort of mathematical foundations of AI as well right. to perhaps understand things like bias. So, yeah, it's, it's really, really great. I also collaborated with uh, Seth Golden and Free Code Camp mm -hmm. on a course, the first ever machine learning and AI ethics course. So that's publicly available. Uh, Free Code Camp has over 8 million followers, so it's getting an excellent viewership. And to anyone listening in, Mm -hmm. I definitely recommend that you go check out that uh, machine learning and AI ethics course sure, at FreeCode sure. Camp right now as well. Sure, great. So um, the development of AGI, artificial general intelligence, is a long-term goal for many in the AI field. What are the key challenges mm -hmm. and potential implication of achieving AGI? And what role do you see for governments and industries and society in this endeavor? Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting question. I sometimes wonder if AGI is something that's attainable. As someone who's studying math and computer science, I try to look at this through Google Lens as much as possible. And I think with you know all the limiting hardware issues that we're experiencing right now, in addition to the infighting that's occurring between the AI ethics and sort of AI long-term AI issues community, um, I wonder if this is a speculative risk or a risk that will materialize. But you know, either way, prioritizing some of these long-term risks is certainly valid in accordance with some of our short-term risks as well. And so I think that one of the biggest risks of developing AGI is that it's not human-aligned and that, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think that we'll have a... I personally don't think that we'll have a Terminator-esque existential crisis, but I do think that, you know, there are a lot of issues if AI have an inherent value system because it's so good at simulating correct and sort of seemingly trustworthy information and so say these AI proliferate throughout the world and become extremely powerful integrate with our existing digital systems it's possible that 
in some pockets of the world, all that will be funneled to individuals is just wrong mm-hmm. misinformation that can galvanize really harmful action. I mean, we've seen individuals do this on a large scale. So imagine if some sort of you know self-sentient uh, machine model that was baked into all of our technological systems was able to just like you know, sort of shove misinformation in our faces and down our throats and um, also being able to track all of our data. There are ways that our data can be commoditized in negative ways. We're already seeing this with um, different social media algorithms, how they're oftentimes recommending the most vitriolic or um, polarizing content to individuals because it gets the most clicks. That's resulted in mental health issues. So imagine if we have this on a much larger scale. And then, of course, there is that existential issue that, you know, if it doesn't understand or have a value system that's aligned with human values, it might say, do, or make decisions that are inappropriate or potentially extremely damaging. Hmm. And if we also start to abdicate more and more of the responsibility of decision-making to these models, it's possible that they could start making decisions without any sort of human intervention or consent, which can lead to catastrophic issues if you think of things like nuclear warfare, bioweapons, etc. So there's just a lot of bad actors that can use the tool negatively, but then if the tool itself becomes sort of independently acting, then it can also do very negative things as well. Thank you so much for your precious time and uh, um, for your insight uh, about the AI system. Um, um, Okizu Bell Statford, a student and AI activist. Thank you so much. Uh, Peace be upon you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming. Some interesting points there yeah. by um, Okizu. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, he's he was uh, talking about a lot of about you know AI and job market. You know how AI is impacting job market and also artificial uh, intelligence, general intelligence, and what are, is the future of AI uh, with the governments and industries. So when we uh, look towards um, you know potential extinction of specific jobs. Um, now, while AI is e- AI is increasingly targeted onto various industries, human may seem to be rapidly surpassed. Humans still outperform AI in numerous complex tasks. You know, <laughs> you talk about humans still surpass the machine. Yeah. I want to go back to Okezu Bell because okay, uh, Okezu Bell because. We introduced him as a Nigerian-American Stanford student uh-huh. and an AI activist. Uh-huh. His application, his focus is on applied machine learning. Uh-huh. And he did uh, research at Harvard Medical School and at the Boston Children's Hospital um, and MIT. Okay. Um, and he has invented a $400 okay. uh, prosthetic arm that is now being piloted to amputees in hospitals and labs wow. across various countries and more. Mm. You know, it's being used mm. for mm-hmm. the benefit of... Humanity and humans, yeah. So important mm. that we are talking about AI. Yes. We are talking about the concerns. But there are some benefits as well here. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, mm. it's important to highlight mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, we've had a guest and, and he's he's done some, some fantastic work True. where it's benefited mm-hmm. amputees. Mm-hmm. And imagine if this kind of, um, um, you know, facility was available in Gaza, um, <laughs> because yeah. the, the largest mm. amount of of uh, children, mm. I think uh, it was a it was a s- statistic, true or not, I don't know that the highest amount of amputees children mm. are in 
in in Gaza because of the the because of the bombardment of 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 that area mm. um kids suffer the most mm. and you'll Sorry. see um you know no matter which way you turn you'll see children um with the with the with the physical disability so this kind of mm-hmm. um intelligence definitely i mean it, everything it can serve has, humanity yeah. in 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 so many ways definitely i think um it is very important that you know uh, when we look towards uh, something we should exp- you know um talk about the ups and downs and uh, the goods and bad of of uh, everything but uh, um we have our next guest of this hour and the last guest anna gross and uh, uh, political correspondent at the financial times um welcome to the drive time show anna peace be upon hi. you hi hi well uh, thank you for having me thank you so much for coming and uh, um and now we're talking about the artificial intelligence and uh, mm. artificial intelligence has shown remarkable progress and but it also raises concern about the safety what are some of the most pressing dangers associated with ai and how can we you know uh, mitigate them uh well so it's a good question i mean and there are a whole range of dangers um associated with the ai i guess probably the most pressing or the most um kind of likely understood to be likely outcome is, is job losses across a lot of key sectors right right um in july the oecd warned that um the the occupations the highest risk of displacement of ai would be the kind of highly skilled white collar jobs which mm-hmm. account for around 27% of mm-hmm. um employment right so there's that there's that side the job losses potential like you know mass unemployment kind of side of things and then there's the, the issues around technology uh showing certain biases or prejudices towards groups mm-hmm. uh, the spread of misinformation um that they could actually help develop dangerous technologies like bioweapons and then on the most extreme end of the scale it's that that this technology could become more intelligent it could actually supersede human intelligence and uh humans wouldn't be able to turn it off and right. it could kind of take over and 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 be really a really destructive force mm-hmm. and when we talk about you know artificial intelligence one question which i often think about is that when we use something less and less it tends to become rusty and weak and uh, the student nowadays and you know everyone they are heavily relying on you know um, ai system chat gtp and other you know artificial intelligence uh, is it uh, dangerous to use t- too much um, you know artificial intelligence for the students especially because uh, they're not using their brain anymore they're just typing um, whatever they need and it's just a copying paste Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think there's two sides to it, mm-hmm. aren't there? I think that when it you can see this kind of thing even day nowadays with technology, my parents used to be amazing map readers. I mean, they they mm-hmm. are amazing mm-hmm. map readers. Right. I never ever read a map. <laughs> <laughs> I only ever I don't I'm terrible at directions. I just totally rely on my Google Maps. Mm-hmm. Some some that is a loss of skill. Right. Um and that does mean you're using your brain less but on the other side potentially some people argue well that frees up more space you don't mm. have to spend all of your time you know a doctor doesn't have to spend necessarily all of that time memorizing facts, right. all of these facts or you know developing skills uh certain skills because if if it if computers are able to augment that and to do it for him maybe he can uh, spend more time doing something else him mm-hmm. or her I should say right right 
Beautiful. Um, and uh, AI bias is a significant concern leading to discriminatory outcomes in various applications. How can we address and prevent bias in AI algorithms? And uh, what role should, um, you know, uh, what role should regulation play in this process? Well, well, one of the ways, I mean, as you say, yeah, but bias is a, is a considerable, hmm. considerable concern. And I think one of the reasons for that is that, um, A, the, the data on which uh, th- these uh, models and algorithms are trained are, A, quite limited mm-hmm. and, B, quite opaque. We right. don't know necessarily what companies are, the data that companies are using to train those algorithms. So I think one way of tackling that is actually by increasing the availability of data that AI models are trained on. Mm-hmm. The more data they have from a much broader set of underlying sources, um, the, the, the less they will tend towards certain biases. Um, and that's why there's a big drive at the moment towards um, uh, making some of the big a- a- data sets data sets actually open source right. so more companies can use them um, and then in terms of regulation I think you can mandate as the US has done recently that, that companies test their AI algorithms for bias mm-hmm. um, and actually you could even say that, that, that those um, results have to be shared with the government right, right. Um, and you can sort of also mandate certain levels of testing like you know you can't just use your own system but you have to use these specific tests okay. that maybe a third party would create Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, and uh, uh, there are concerns about AI being used for uh, malicious purposes, such as uh, deep fakes and autonomous weapons. What measures should be taken to prevent the misuse of AI technology? Um, well, so I, I think there is various things that can be done. You, you mm-hmm. can um, enforce external third-party testing of AI model, AI models, like we talked about. Um, or you could require that um, AI model creators share their safety test results and other critical information with the government and regulators. Right. Um, you can also make make uh, the people who produce these models identify and disclose the data the systems have been trained on. That's another thing we've kind of touched upon because it's the underlying data that's, that's um, kind of what determines their outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can also actually make the creators of these models liable, as in criminally liable, if they uh, are used for malicious purposes, mm-hmm. even if that wasn't, it wasn't them who used them for those malicious purposes. And that's something the EU is thinking about now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, AI regulation is uh, a pressing global issue. And uh, can you tell us about the approaches uh, different countries are taking when it comes to uh, regulating AI? Yeah, so there is a quite a, a, a big uh, spectrum, I suppose, of approaches that are being taken. Um, the EU has drafted some quite, the, probably the toughest measures out there mm-hmm. um, about the use of our AI um, that would put the onus on tech companies um, to, to ensure that their models don't break any rules. Right. Um, so um, it's kind of, you can see it as like a bit uh, like, a template for other countries to emulate mm-hmm. like in the style of the the GDPR regulation mm-hmm. um, which is, is kind of how data protection laws around the world operate right. and, and so they've moved a lot quicker than the US where mm-hmm. lawmakers are kind of um, preparing a kind of broader um, review of AI to determine what what might what kind of regulation might need to be set up. Right. The, the, U, the UK is also not kind of picking something very 
not not going very hard it's sort of saying all of the different regulators could um can kind of come up with their mm-hmm. own approach um and it should be kind of done sector by sector rather than based on the specific technology mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and both the american and british approaches are expected to be quite a lot more or are seen at least as more pro industry um mm. than the brussels law Right, right. So what, you know, challenges and opportunities um arises from these diverse regulatory strategies? Yeah, I think what is it one of the risks I suppose of the EU model if we start with that because it's the most what appears to be the most stringent. Yeah. yeah. And that some some companies um have uh complained that um it kind of creates a disproportionate cost for them mm-hmm. of complying. um with uh implementing these all of these different systems like create, doing all the safety checks sharing all of the information with government like jumping through all of these hurdles so a it could create a lot more cost for companies and uh, i guess also that could reduce barriers to entry for some smaller companies mm-hmm. so you end up having just the big companies that are able to play and that can keep the technology in the hands of a much smaller group of people mm-hmm. much more group of companies um but yeah on the other hand i think another risk that we see is if there's all of these kind of varying regulatory frameworks you might end up seeing companies kind of just a confused about where they can operate and what and kind of like struggling to to meet all of these different demands but b picking countries or picking areas where it's just easier for them mm-hmm. so you might see a kind of exodus of companies from europe moving let's say to the US or to England where the rules are much less stringent and um, so i i think mm-hmm. that's one of the difficulties i think uh one of the opportunities that arises is that uh, for, for for countries like the UK which is mm-hmm. holding its AI safety summit this week okay. is if they manage to create a very kind of clear comprehensive uh strategy for um safety and for regulation they they might be able to make a uh, be, become a very attractive place for companies to come and set up and to build and grow mm-hmm. and finally um what's the role of ai well, let me rephrase that a year ago all these top um IT professionals owners people like Elon Musk wrote letters warning that the the progression of AI is too fast for the layman or even for countries do you think that letter has had any impact on uh the slowing down of the uh, the the progression in AI and the reason i asked that question of progression is because i was just um looking it up uh, on linkedin and Tesla had just released uh, the the first demo of a self-drive car and uh, and uh, you know I don't think people take the notion of a self-drive car serious enough because it will impact not just one industry of of transportation but it will actually impact millions of people across the world so do you think the progression of AI in the industry needs to slow down 
That's an interesting question. I mean, the first part of your question was about whether it has slowed down yes. as a result of that letter and other warnings that have been issued by uh, various people inside the industry and in academia, etc. Mm-hmm. I would say that my sense is that it hasn't. The actual progression, the physical scientific progression has not slowed. I do think that countries, governments, regulators are starting to take it more seriously. And that is partly because of those warnings. Wonderful. So, uh, yeah. Um, do I think it needs to slow? My personal opinion is it would probably be good to get in place a kind of clearer sense of the regulation that's needed before kind of powering ahead. You know, we're coming up to the hour. I would have asked you so many questions about the political impact <laughs> of AI on the world, but I'm sure we will contact you again uh, on Definitely. this topic. Um, thank you for so, thank you so much for taking time out this afternoon uh, for the pleasure. Drive Time Show. I wish you a fantastic uh, afternoon and evening ahead. Peace be with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. That was Anna. Uh, Gross, who is a political correspondent at the Financial Times. That would be interesting. That would be an interesting show to ask Anna, you know, the the impact AI would have on political decisions (laughs) that are being made around the world. It's a very interesting question uh, to to basically uh, to look into. Or the interference of AI. Mm. Could there be interference with AI or if there is already... Mm -hmm. AI, which is in place in some of the decisions. I think it's already because, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's something very annoying for me when, you know, you're using, uh, you know, the the certain apps. And uh, when you stay on the the, some videos, uh, like uh, longer than the, you know, other videos, then it giving you the same kind of videos ahead. And it's creating your narrative, you know. And sometimes it's so annoying that you know just your your feed is just about the same videos and stuff like that, and no, you're not knowing the uh, other uh, you know um, opinion of other people. Do you think it will make uh, the next generation more lazier? Lazier, and I think. And no, I don't mean lazy physically, mm-hmm. mentally. Mentally, and I think it it will make them extremists because they only know the one perspective because. Uh, it, it tends to give you the same uh, um, uh, information which you like again and again, and it doesn't give you the you know uh, information which is uh, uh, against that. So I think it it in, in that sense will really become lazier and also extremist. Yeah. Just to just to uh, uh, educate you, brother Imran. Uh, that's called a recommender system, by the way. Okay. Um, one of mm. our producers has said uh, when you keep getting recommendations mm. based on mm. what you've watched, mm. uh, it's part of machine learning. Right. Something I've I've just learned. <laughs> so, sure. you know, it's uh, uh, it, it is it, it's it, it's here. Mm. Yeah, definitely. There's nothing we can do about it. But I want to finish um, on. Uh, on the words of His Holiness. Mm. So I want to thank our producers, Faiza Mirza, Faiza Saeed, um, and, uh, um, and Mutabashra Tanvir Ahmed for producing uh, today's fantastic shows. I want to thank our guests for taking time and uh, coming on to the Drive Time Show and, and shedding insight um, onto the topics. Thank you to you, uh, Brother Imran. Thank you so much. Um, let's go and listen to the words until we meet again. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Today, The world around us is constantly evolving and advancing. Unquestionably, in the past few decades, the world has moved forward 
in leaps and bounds in terms of technological development. Every day, new forms of modern technology and scientific advancement are being developed. Progress is being made in many spheres of our life. For example, modern form of communication and, and electronics are continually progressing at a rapid rate. The research and development taking place is bringing ease and comfort to our daily lives. This proves that human beings have been able to use their intelligence and minds to move forward and to increase productivity, efficiency, and personal comfort.